Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. I'm killing you, Smalls. There's no crying in baseball. I on the ball, okay? One, two, three, strike. That guy was a bro. <laughs> and his name is Dan Ugly. Let's go Bucks. Oh, uh, you're calling me weird. God bless America. God bless the Queen. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Top Step. I am Steve Miller alongside, over Zoom, Paul Fritchner in Cincinnati, who is reeling from yet another Bengals loss. Paul, happy Sunday. How are you? Well, Steve, it was an absolutely miserable way for the Bengals to lose yet again. Joe Burrow leads a spectacular drive down the field, but Cody Parkey for the Browns misses the extra point. Bengals cover the three and a half. So at least there's a bittersweet ending for the Bengals who just continue to cover the spread, but cannot seem to win a one score game to save their life. It is remarkable that the Bengals have won against the spread. What are they, six and one now? Six and one now. Six and one for the season. And uh, Paul, you you are very closely aware of the spread because uh, you're attuned to the industry of sports betting. And if you haven't heard Paul's <laughs> podcast about sports betting in the state of Ohio, I'll plug it right now. <laughs> I, I tell Paul he's an absolute scholar when it comes to uh, these sorts of matters of sports interest. And he interviewed a couple really knowledgeable people in Ohio and kind of got to the bottom of that. Uh, but right now in baseball, we're in the middle of an exciting World Series it's Sunday. The Tampa Bay Rays and Dodger, Los Angeles Dodgers are tied two games to two. Game five tonight. Very exciting game last night. Steve, what happened in game four last night? Oh, boy. <laughs> Paul's like, not going to let me. Particularly from the sixth inning on. What happened? I, I heard it was really exciting. I was in a deep slumber, I'll tell you that much. Uh, these in your were... defense, you, were, you you had to get up early. Yeah, I okay. I had a long day Saturday. I went to Shenandoah National Park. It was a great day. But I, yeah, these games, they start at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And they go for a while. There's lots of commercials and and pitching changes during the World Series. So, yeah, I think it was like, it was like 11 when I went to bed. And it was still like the sixth inning or so. Uh, Yeah, I missed all the excitement that was the Tampa Bay Rays coming back. And it was Brett Phillips previously unknown to the baseball world who hit a thrilling walk-off what was it a walk-off single technically yeah I guess they scored a single with an error uh yeah I mean in your defense it it was funny I was looking at the inning and the time and I was like man it is it is like 11 30 or whatever time it was on the east coast and the game was just grinding along and it was a very good game but it was a very long game um, but yeah, it got down to the last, the end of the ninth inning. And I, it's funny. I saw a tweet right before Phillips came to the plate and it said, uh, Kevin Cass should be fired for even allowing Brett Phillips to be put in this situation. That didn't age well. And, uh, that did not age well, but the other funny part about it was, or not really funny, I guess, but good for Phillips kudos to him was the first three pitches the at bat he he had that single on a one and two count but the first three pitches that at bat were all balls and two of them were called strikes and he didn't swing at any of them which in his defense it should have been three and oh yeah and instead jansen throws a one and two cutter that doesn't cut and phillips takes it in right field and the rest is history but the rest uh, is history <laughs> very exciting very thrilling very exciting finish you thought a rosarena was going to be held up but um the content to it and before we get into the main topic for today this was really the one thing i wanted to hammer home um 
you know, you can get your analysis about the game anywhere, ESPN, Fox, any of those places. But the one thing that I particularly enjoyed about last night in the World Series game was the content that came out of that was incredible. What MLB did um, with one of their camera guys who got a visual of the Rays dugout and then followed them with their celebration out onto the field. Like Major League Baseball needs more of that. And it was about a two and a half minute video of the hit, the play, the dugout reaction, and then following them out into the celebration in the outfield, all in one shot, all with the same angle, all in one take. And it was, it was spectacular. It was great. It was like you were one of the Tampa Bay Rays. Right. Yeah. And MLB has been kind of, like you said, experimenting with more of that recently. Just recently I saw a shot from the Nats. I think it was their NLCS clincher last year where a guy came in from the center field wall, like behind the, the same on. guy. Yeah. It's the, the same, same guy. Okay. I, th- and, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so he runs in and, and you see the outfielder celebrate and then he runs into the dog pile in the center of the diamond. And yeah, it's just a couple minutes. You feel like you're one of the players celebrating. Well, back to the world series this year, it's being played at globe life field in Arlington, Texas, which replaces globe life park the previous uh, Texas Rangers stadium. This is just the neutral site bubble, if you will, for the World Series. Uh, and it also served as the site for the NLCS. And um, it fits into our topic today because this is the newest park in Major League Baseball. And there was an excellent book written last year called Ballpark Baseball in the American City, which I saw on bookshelves uh, in bookstores for a few months uh, throughout the year and ended up picking it up finally um, because this kind of fits really well into uh, my passion in baseball, which is like baseball and culture and geography. Um, And I love talking about baseball stadiums and I guess the evolution of them. So what I want to do today is just kind of review the book and talk about ballpark history um, in respect to what the author says. The the author of this book is Paul Goldberger. And it's it's interesting because it's very much a baseball history, but Goldberger is an architect. He's an architectural critic. And so he writes the book about baseball, but with respect to baseball architecture. so it's called Ballpark Baseball in the American City. I highly recommend picking it up. Um, and even if you don't want to read the whole thing, because it is lengthy, it's over 300 pages and it's, it's dense. Can't be too. having that. Yeah, I, I know Paul's Paul's not exactly a literary connoisseur over here. And honestly, I'm not either. I, I don't read fast, but uh, this, this is such a rich book and it's a good reference book too. You can pick it up and read parts of it and be just as entertained. But even if you don't want to sit down and, and read even a chapter, I do recommend reading the prologue because the prologue is only a few pages and it really is, is like a poetic summary to his entire book. It's his thesis is that a good ballpark is what he calls Rus in Urbe. And that's Latin for the rural within the city. And that's something that made a lot of sense to me when I read it, because I, it's something I think I had noticed. And I think a lot of baseball fans notice about really good ballparks, especially since Camden Yards in 1992, because what, what a really good baseball stadium is, is this like rural athletic oasis in the middle of a dense city and stadiums that are done well really like lean into that as an identity of the stadium so he breaks down the history of american ballpark architecture into essentially four phases the first phase was at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century just when ballparks were becoming a thing really Previously, baseball was played on fields that didn't really have boundaries and you just kind of showed up and set up a chair and watched if you wanted to. But then when owners realized they could capitalize on the game and sell tickets, they had to kind of create some boundaries for, you know, if you pay, you can come in. If you don't pay, you can, you know, watch from a telephone pole or something. Um, And so ballparks 
grew into and kind of out of the neighborhoods that they their owners put them in. And so some of the ballparks that still stand from that age are are two of the best regarded parks in baseball. That's Fenway Park in Boston and Wrigley Field in Chicago. And in both cases, you see you see that interplay between the rural and the urban. You see the the field itself actually shaped by the neighborhood that it's in. In fact, the Green Monster is what it is because of the uh, the neighborhood in in Boston. Go ahead, Paul. No, I was just going to say I I took a class at Xavier. Uh, it was history of American sport, mm-hmm. and it was talking about how when you look at a park like Wrigley Field, if you look at it from a bird's eye view. Um, it's built into one square city block. And I went to Wrigley Field for the first time over the summer. And I noticed that um, I noticed how it's a square block, but the way that Wrigley is shaped, it's built into just that one so that the neighborhoods and the surrounding streets and everything, nothing is really out of sync. It just takes up one block and that's the stadium. Whereas you don't really see that too much anymore with the way stadiums are built. They're the, surrounding area is built around the stadium whereas back then the stadium was built within the surrounding area uh, but that's just one little bit and little nugget like you said between Fenway and Wrigley from back then that they're so strictly built within those blocks right absolutely and, and that plays into Goldberger's thesis baseball really is an urban sport and it's the most urban of all the major sports that are played in America but what inevitably happened in the middle of the 20th century as more Americans had leisure time, got automobiles, uh, transportation was just much more fluid. In the especially post World War II era, era, there was this suburbanization that essentially took over America, and a lot of the focus of population and uh, infrastructure shifted away from the cities, and with it, so did leisure. Um, and a lot of times, you would see these multi-use stadiums be built both in location and uh, for utilitarian purposes outside of cities. Um, I mean, most of our, our East, East Coast teams, I guess, played outside cities. Look at uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. There was, uh, was a Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. Like all sorts of multi-use outside the downtown area stadiums were built. Um, and it really kind of took the, the nostalgia, I guess, away from the, the the urban part of baseball itself and baseball just became like one of another sport that was played in a city and the ballparks became kind of like anonymous almost because almost everyone was just a giant concrete bowl that would be configured for football and baseball. And there just wasn't such a, an urban identity that was left in these ballparks anymore. But that was then, something cool about a stadium like RFK downtown in DC, which was a little bit, well, RFK was pretty centrally located. More downtown. centrally than the others, yeah. But it, again, it was, it was FedEx Field, <laughs> right? But uh, that's that's ironic and true. But it it was a multi-use stadium, uh, so it, yeah, it, yeah, it didn't yeah. really have the baseball identity. You're right. Yeah. Um, and what what would you say between like RFK and say Nationals Park, where Nationals Park when it was built, there was nothing. There was the Department of Transportation building across the street and then Navy Yard a little bit farther walking distance down from it. But there was right. nothing in right. Southeast where Nationals Park was. And now it's blossomed into this huge cultural kind of epicenter down there along the Anacostia River. Absolutely right. And Nationals Park is a, is a fascinating case study. D.C. is an interesting city in general because it's so different. 
but Nationals Park is part of this next era of baseball stadiums where they went back to the city and, and generally Camden Yards is regarded as the, the kickoff of that movement. Um, some people call it the ballpark renaissance that started in 92 when Camden Yards was built. And it was built in that Inner Harbor District in Baltimore. And really a lot of American cities, a lot of Eastern American cities suffered in the mid to end of the 20th century, the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, it's kind of how the Rust Belt became the Rust Belt. It was no longer an industrial epicenter. It was more of what has been. And baseball kind of helped the re-urbanization, as you suggest, to kind of get people, especially younger people, back into the cities and get people downtown again and facilitate more of that culture. So Camden Yard started and really tied together that Inner Harbor region. Um, Nationals Park is interesting because it was built along the water, uh, similar to Camden Yards, uh, close to close to the water in a neighborhood that needed uh, some, some upkeep, I guess, to put it lightly, some, some refurbishment. But National Park opened in 2008, which was a terrible time for everything else. Uh, any other kind of business to get going, the economy was really suffering back then. And I think the, the vision of National Park was what it is now, but they wanted it to happen sooner in that they wanted all sorts of restaurants and shops and residential and commercial to open up around and really have the ballpark be the center of this new urban neighborhood. And uh, it just didn't happen for a long time. So, I mean, you, you and I both started going to Nats games at Nationals Park back in 08. And yeah, it was just like, it was like the Dust Bowl, but like, instead of it being in the middle of the country, it was in the middle of a city and there was just barren construction and just a bunch of gray, you know, concrete yeah. that hadn't been worked on in months because everything kind of stalled out, like right when the ballpark opened up. Yeah, yeah. And now it's turned into hotels, the salt lines across the street. There's all those different bars and restaurants and things that you can do that are down along the, the waterway there. So it's turned into something really nice. Right. And a lot of baseball teams opened up uh, stadiums in that uh, probably, what, 30-ish year span, really even a 20-year span between 92 and I guess 2012. It's a 20-year span. So uh, Camden Yards opened up in 92. Um, I'll just kind of hit the highlights here. So um, PNC Park in Pittsburgh was in the early 2000s, I think 01. And then Petco Park in San Diego, Citizens Bank Park were both around 2004. Um, great American here in Cincinnati. Great American. 03. 03, 03, yeah. So, so really in, in that, yeah, in that span of about 20 years, Nationals Park was 08. And then really the last great, I'd say, of these parks was uh, Target Field in Minnesota that opened up in 2010. And I remember the big discussion about Target Field was that it was outside in Minnesota, that they weren't playing inside, especially if you were going to have playoffs and things that stretch in November, you're going to be playing in sub-freezing temperatures. Right, yeah. And and the beauty of an outdoor ballpark is, you know, what Goldberger suggests is that you kind of get that rural feel. You get this uh, kind of unconstrained, you know, athletic playing field. And when you put a roof over top of it, it just kind of, degrades or even in some cases like negates that that feeling so um it worked really well target field is a little bit reminiscent actually of camden yards where you kind of have the city street that that moves into that right field area they in target field they have a flag court just like they do in baltimore baltimore i think does it the best where utah street really is like a city street that runs between the baltimore and ohio railroad warehouse and the field itself and they just kind of turn it into a part of the ballpark when the game's going on yeah. And, and it really is that, that 
sense of the urban kind of invading the the space of the rural. Um, the the BNO warehouse though was a large discussion. Well, Camden Yards was was a, almost an entire chapter in this book, as it should be, because it, it just kind of kicked off this movement. But the the discussion of the Baltimore and Ohio warehouse was interesting because the original architects of Camden Yards kind of saw it as an obstacle. Um, and then there were some people in the the camp of like, oh, we need to we need to keep it. We need to like it's a historic building. We can't just tear it down for the the sake of the baseball stadium. And once everybody kind of agreed to make it part of the architecture of the stadium itself, they really saw it as a gift to really tie together the Inner Harbor neighborhood to baseball. And now I think most people agree Cannon Yards is one of the probably top five, if not top one or two ballparks in the country. And the backdrop of the warehouse is absolutely iconic. And it's, it's probably the most iconic thing about baseball now in Baltimore. Um, and it was almost a mistake that it even happened uh, or it just wasn't so much planned when they originally got the site of the stadium. Um, but yeah, Camden Yards is definitely one of the gems of that movement. And you see other stadiums using the city's uh, existing infrastructure. I think San Diego honestly does it the best with the Western Metal Supply Company building because it's even closer to the field than, than the warehouse is in Baltimore. The side of this building is literally like the left field foul pole in yeah. San Diego. So you and see the great part about that is you can see when the ball is a fair ball, the way it bounces, right. that's how they can figure out if it's a fair or foul ball. Yeah, exactly. And you see all the time, cause it's right on the line there. So many home runs get hit into the warehouse and I, in reflecting of, of my own opinions of stadiums, I've for a long time, I've thought Petco Park was the, the best stadium in baseball. Uh, and I've only been to about half of them. So I, I'm by no means uh, the foremost opinion on the subject. But I do think I had a sense of this when I kind of determined for myself that Petco was the best. But really reading this book and understanding it's that that interplay, that invasion of the rural into the urban and then the other way around that really makes a stadium great. And we see that really well done in Baltimore and in San Diego. And then to a lesser extent with infrastructure, but you know, in other ways we see it done in other stadiums. Um, I love water. So Cincinnati is, is awesome because it's built right on the river there. Even better than that though, I think our Oracle Park in San Francisco, although I haven't been there. And then PNC Park in Pittsburgh because the river is even closer and you see more home runs hit into the river. And again, just that interplay between what's there in the city and what kind of defines the city from an industry and a cultural standpoint becomes part of the baseball game itself. And that to me is really what makes baseball unique among all the sports. And, and Goldberger points that out uh, in these chapters of his book. Yeah. And when you look at a stadium like Cincinnati, I think back to when it opened in 2003 and where we are now, and I keep thinking it's a new stadium. It's a new stadium going on 20 ish years that that stadium has been open. And if you look at what they did in Texas ballpark in Arlington was only open for 20 plus years, right in that area before now, now it, different circumstances because they built this new globe life field because they wanted to have it indoors. They want to have it air conditioned guys were getting hurt being out in that Texas heat. You look at the Southern stadiums like Tampa, Miami, Texas, now Houston, Arizona they can all play inside when it gets hot and Texas was the exception there you can't have the Texas Rangers continue to play outside in heat like that that just seems miserable and 
uh, credit to, to credit to them for being able to get that done. What happens to the old stadium? I know it originally was going to be used for the XFL, but now the XFL went under. So who knows? Maybe high school football. But that's huge in Texas. Maybe they find some use for that. Can't imagine they tear it down. But again, to the other point you were talking about with buildings, there's a building out in center field in Texas. A or uh, what they now old Texas stadium. Uh, I forget what it's used for, if it's just team offices or if it's a conference center or what it was that's used or if it's just a regular office building. I don't remember um, what it is out there in center field, but there was a building attached to the stadium out in center field at Globe Life Stadium in Texas. And then in Toronto, you can have a hotel room that overlooks the outfield if you're so inclined to watch a ball game from your hotel room. Shout out to Zach uh, Campbell for catching a, a- practice ball in in the hotel room at uh, Rogers Center yeah um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something somewhere but or or like Wrigley has the the uh, rooftops of the apartment buildings now that's just a credit to the design of the way the stadium and again the blocks and the streets and everything and the way it worked out but still the architecture and the surrounding area plays into the environment of how the baseball game is viewed. Yeah, absolutely. And Texas uh, is an interesting case study also. Have you been down to Arlington at all? Yeah, I have. I have not gone to a game there. They were out of town, uh, but I went to the stadium. Um, We drove, I I think we just drove around it. We didn't actually go in because we drove around uh, Cowboy Stadium too. Uh, It's right all in the same parking lot, really. Uh, It's all right there. But they were out of town when we were down there. I remember it was right before college. Cause I was visiting Texas A&M. Um, so I was still, I was like a senior going into my senior year of high school, maybe something like that. Okay. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about Texas, but a couple more points to this kind of, I guess it's the third wave of ballparks that started with Camden yards um, because there are, there are other elements, I guess, of, you know, urban infrastructure that teams couldn't really incorporate. So, I guess uh, like obtrusively as the, like as the warehouse is and as the Western metal supply company building is, but um, Houston, for instance, the Minute Maid park is right in the middle of Houston's downtown. It's really interesting because it's a retractable roof park. So you think it would kind of go against the, the Rus and Urbe uh, as we talked about and, and the reason why people didn't want a, a roof over the target field in Minneapolis, but Minute Maid park is built, I guess like, intimately enough it's confined enough it still feels very urban and it's right there on a city street and the team offices which are i think right behind the left field side maybe the third base side if i'm remembering right you see the left field or third base are uh in the old union station of houston so it's oh really it's an old train station yeah you can just like walk into and there's like the team store and there's some offices and stuff and you walk through there to get into the ballpark and then the team uses the the train transportation theme over left field they've got train tracks set up and there's an elevated like three or four car orange train that uh didn't Juan Soto hit a home run up there last year that sat there for somebody did I forget who it was it happens a lot actually because it's it is a small enough park it it happens frequently Juan Soto hit one up there during the world series I don't know how long it sat but I remember there was some home run that like sat and the Fox cameras kept going back and showing it. And they were like, it's still sitting there. It's still sitting there. It's still sitting there. Yeah, Somebody go up and been, get that. 
That might have been Juan Soto's because he hit one. Uh, in, I think it was game one of the World Series last year. But that would have been opposite field. Yeah, I don't know. He, no, he, put he it did. past him though. Yeah, he did hit one up there because yeah, he, yeah. I mean, he's a strong boy. By the way, it's yeah. his 22nd birthday today. Apparently, I saw that on Twitter. What are we doing with our lives? That's a great question. I wonder. Well, this would... I don't want to speak for you. You're actually doing something. I haven't done anything in a while, but. <laughs> When they show these guys ages during the World Series, like, oh, 23 years old, you know, playoff debut. Oh, my gosh. I'm a has-been, Paul. Yeah, well, has-been for me would mean I ever was, and I'm not <laughs> sure that would be a thing. That's fair. All right. Um, so that that kind of hits the highlights for uh, these urban ballparks. Coors Field was another one I mentioned. I was going to – I was waiting. I didn't know if you had anything to say about Coors Field. but Yeah, uh, so, so Coors, Coors Field I think is the premier example of the ballpark from the outside fitting into its neighborhood. And I know you've been to Coors Field, Paul. Uh, this lower downtown neighborhood in Denver is really interesting. It got a lot of bars and like Western-themed kind of, you know, restaurants and shops. And it's it's a brick-laden uh, neighborhood like almost all these buildings have these brick exteriors and course field is built low enough the field itself is built low enough that the exterior of the ballpark does not rise all that much higher than the other buildings in this neighborhood so unless you know the ballpark is there and you know what it is from afar you really can't tell unless you're looking at it from the the rear and see all the purple seats and or the green seats and whatever but um it really kind of seamlessly blends into the the exterior of the neighborhood. Another thing Coors Field does extremely well is it's oriented towards the mountains. So when you're sitting somewhere behind the infield in Coors Field and looking out, you really feel like you're in Colorado because you're you're seeing the front range out there uh, just west of Denver, and it's a really cool feeling. Yeah, I I was looking at the list of major league stadiums that I've been to. I've been I, I thought I had been to a lot more than I have, but again, it's kind of like Texas where I've been to them, but the team has been out of town. Um, but I've, I've seen Coors Field a game. I've been to Coors, Safeco, Camden, Nationals Park, Great American. That's only five. Wrigley uh, was Corona. They, they were actually, they were playing actually in the stadium, but because uh, there were guys outside waiting for home runs and yeah. stuff. They were, I think playing the White Sox, but again, couldn't go to a game. Texas couldn't go to a game. Petco couldn't go to a game. Uh, well, I mean, it was in the winter, so no season going on. Uh, yeah. Petco and and maybe a couple others up Fenway, uh, uh, Shea Stadium, maybe not Shea Stadium. City, holy cow, City Field. Shea Stadium's been gone for a while. Uh, but City, uh, not C- Citizens Bank Park, Philadelphia. All these stadiums. The team's been out of town. Just had bad luck. Yeah, uh, but I've been through and seen them, yeah. and and I and I can say, yeah, from my experience of seeing these stadiums, you're right. What he describes and and the way that these stadiums try to emulate the culture, and that's the thing too that I think is nice about baseball and the stadiums, and I guess you could say it for any sport, but baseball more so than like basketball, where it's inside and the arena is inside, and football where the field is the same and baseball gives you that unique flavor where or you know hockey too being inside baseball allows you to be unique because there's no set dimensions so you can do whatever you want with the stadium if you want to build the outside or the outfield seats high so that you can put a roof over your head sure go ahead and do it if you want to space everything out and don't have a ton of outfield seats cool 
you know, look at LA, the angels, they have a ton of seats in right field, but center field and all the way over where the, I guess the batter's eye would be is kind of like the fountain and what happens in course field with the, the little forest out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that kind of dates back to that original era of ballparks that we talked about at the beginning, because you had to fit these parks into these neighborhoods there really couldn't be a super strict set of rules because you just kind of had to make it work with what you were working with. Nowadays, in fact, if Fenway Park were trying to be built now, I don't think it could be because left field is too short. I think there is like a minimum distance now of like 325 or 330 or something down the line. What is it to left field? Ed Fenway? Yeah. I think it's like 310. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty short. I just yeah. don't know for sure. I think it's 310 to right to, to Pesky's pole and right, but then it juts out like 80 feet back beyond yeah. that, you know, and not very much room. So yeah, Fenway is, is super interesting. And, you know, one of the great parks of baseball, of course, and lots of people love it. So the next era of ballparks, actually, before we get into the next area, era, I do want to talk about Miami because Marlins park does not <laughs> really fit into anything as evidenced by the look of it. If you, if you ever have the privilege of going to a Marlins game, and I've only been to one in 2012, right before it opened, I went to one of the exhibition games against the Yankees. Um, walking into the little Havana neighborhood and just looking at Marlins Park, it looks like an alien spacecraft has descended upon like a small Hispanic neighborhood and just like sitting there. It's like Arrival, the movie, you ever see that? Yeah, where, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amy Adams is the language Amy translator, yep. and the, the spaceship is just like sitting there. That's what Marlins Park looks like, <laughs> just like so out of place. Once you're in it, it's a little bit better because there's more of the Miami vibe, and you see the Miami skyline through the windows in left field. But it's it's a modern ballpark. It got a lot of the, the modern amenities of uh, these new urban ballparks that we described. It kind of ties into the city because you see the the skyline out there. It fits with the Miami culture, I guess. Jeter has changed a lot of what's in the park in the last two years, but like the home run fountain, that was just very like Art Deco Miami, you know, when that was. Never happened to that. I mean, I know it's gone, but right. They, so older. Jeter, Jeter didn't Marlins like it. Marlins man have it in his backyard. <laughs> I wish that'd be hilarious. Uh, the Jeter Sherman administration took it down, and they're reconstructing it outside the stadium. So it's going to be there on site, but it's just not going to be in the stadium why not keep it inside what was their deal with that because it was an eyesore most people didn't like it i don't think Uh, i didn't like it you didn't like it no and i mean i'm not a miamian so i i don't really i don't feel like i deserve a say in that but from a watching on tv aesthetic i did not like it the little dolphin on the little thing it was not a dolphin it was a marlin or uh, sorry, I'm thinking Miami Dolphins. Yes, yeah. Marlin. Yes, <laughs> but no, it did. NFL, look like... NFL Sunday. I got a lot. I got no, no. A lot well, of what's funny is that a lot of people think uh, FP Santangelo calls it the Pinocchio Dolphin because it's a little more rounded than a, a Marlin, so it does kind of <laughs> resemble a dolphin a little bit. Anyway, they're constructing that outside the the park. So, yeah, Marlins Park is mentioned in the book. Um, he calls it Miami Modern. It's it's different. It doesn't really fit into the the new urban ballparks. And it doesn't really fit into this next age of ballparks that we kind of started talking about with Texas. And then the other one that is uh, kind of part of this new wave is SunTrust Park in Atlanta. 
And so there's really only two. So Goldberger is a little bit wary. Truest, of, truest. No. Sorry, you're right. You're right. Truest. SunTrust, I think, became Truest or was it bought did. out. There was yeah. like a merger or something. Yeah. I used to be a proud uh, member of the SunTrust institution. So I got the whole letter on the merger. Oh, excellent. That's the only well, reason I know. Thanks. Thanks for keeping me straight. Side note on that. I just saw for the first time yesterday a brick and mortar guaranteed rate insurance building which is the sponsor of the White Sox Stadium now, formerly U.S. Cellular Field. Yep. And I think, was there another one? Uh, I don't remember, but it just recently became called Guaranteed Rate Insurance Field, which I think is probably the ugliest of the corporate names in uh, baseball right now. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other ones that could outdo it, but Guaranteed Rate Field comes to mind as number one. It sounds like a a bizarro college bowl game, honestly. Well, even in San Francisco, it got changed to Oracle Park, but yeah. Oracle's kind of yeah, kind of cool. And and uh, Seattle's was changed from Safeco to T-Mobile, and I, I like Safeco better because it's more of a, a niche uh, company, I guess. T-Mobile, everyone knows about, so that's like kind of impersonal. Like Petco, I will never see a Petco store and not think of the Padres. I never heard of Safeco Insurance without thinking of the Mariners. I have T-Mobile insurance or T-Mobile coverage, and I, I when I look at my cell phone, I do not think of the Mariners now, so didn't work. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so this this new wave of ballparks, and and again, Goldberg is wary of, of calling it a wave because it's only been two, and he doesn't like it. Is Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas, where the Rangers play, and Truist Park in Atlanta, and these ballparks have been built as the focal pieces of suburban but like urban style neighborhoods where they want restaurants and bars and casinos and entertainments uh like concert venues and some corporate offices built up in this kind of like baseball centered theme park is how he describes it outside the city for instance atlantis is in cobb county which is i think it's about 17 miles outside the city center of atlanta yeah it's not it's not right downtown at all right the rangers are on the same site as their old stadium, but now it's, it's part of this more developed neighborhood. And the, the biggest reason why Goldberger doesn't like this is much more nuanced than just the transportation uh, issue, which is an issue, but it fits back into the whole Roos and Urbe thing. So he argues that, that a ballpark is already a simulacrum of a city, meaning that you have the, I guess the organization of the stands you have the amenities, you have the restaurants and the bars and the standing room places where you can watch the game. You have museums in these ballparks and you kind of have the, I guess, unanticipated, uh, like uncontrolled nature of the crowd themselves that kind of mimics the population of a city. You kind of get a mix of everything you've got, you know, within the scope of what people can afford baseball but you have like rich and poor you have all sorts of races you have all sorts of occupations just a a wonderful like diversity of people watching the game and so the the ballpark itself is already like a a type of city just a a miniature city within the city so making making the ballpark the centerpiece of another simulacrum of a city of another controlled neighborhood of restaurants and whatever outside the city is kind of redundant and kind of undermines what the ballpark already is in itself. And so you just kind of get this like ironic impersonality, I guess, of a ballpark within a neighborhood outside the city because it undercuts really what 
baseball has done in the history of America as it kind of mimics American history with um, its waves and, and the architecture that it uses. And it just doesn't feel like baseball when you have to travel 17 miles outside a city and you're in this very like controlled, uh, sterile setting, I guess, with all this new shiny stuff, you know, restaurants and bars and whatever. And then you're going into a ballpark and it's, it's like, it's this weird suburban, but not really like, it doesn't want to be, it wants to be urban, but it just wasn't, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Are, are there any new stadiums besides Oakland that are due to be built? And even Oakland hasn't gotten finalized yet to, to my knowledge, maybe they have, uh, I know they've been talking and it was close. I don't think it's finalized yet, but it could be. Right. Um, I'm trying to think if any team is due for a new stadium. I don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Everybody's no, pretty settled. Oakland has, has, I think had a couple deals or designs where they were pretty close. Like you mentioned, I don't think anything's finalized right now. And the Coliseum is really the last of the dual use football, baseball stadiums. That's, that's still in use. And yeah, especially this point, now that Miami's gone and in their own place. Right. The only other one that might happen, I guess, is Tampa. They're trying to figure out what to do with the Rays, especially now that oh, they're, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to it's hard to take a contender out from their city. There was a weird deal before uh, a couple of years ago where they thought about moving into Montreal for like half of a season and having like a dual use team. Um, but I don't think they're going to do that. There was a deal for a stadium, but that fell through. So Tampa is in a little bit of a limbo um, because right now they play in St. Pete, but Tampa kind of wants them. And then Oakland, of course, but yeah, the, the newest two were truest park in Atlanta globe life field in Arlington. And then at this point, I would say unless Tampa or Oakland get built soon, we're probably not going to see another new stadium for a long time. I would say the same thing because stadiums will undergo renovations, but these stadiums are starting to settle into cities. When you look at a city like Cincinnati or you look, I was just looking this summer at the pictures of great American ballpark when it was built on opening day, what it was like on opening day, 2003 versus what it is now It is unrecognizable downtown, the apartment buildings, the bars, the life that is down there that has completely been built up because of the ballpark and there's no footprint down there anymore to build a stadium in the same place. Cause that's what happened when they tore down riverfront, they tore down river or, well, I guess it was synergy at the very end, but synergy riverfront, same physical structure, just different name naming rights. When they tore down synergy, great American was already standing like 30 feet be, behind it. Like if you hit a home run beyond the left field wall at synergy field in, in the last season, and it got a, decent enough bounce it was going to bounce and roll and like potentially hit great american ballpark but you can't do that anymore with a lot of these stadiums like nats park there was a lot of construction there before but now the hotels and everything's built built up around it camden yards all this stuff so if you want to keep a stadium in the middle of the city you look at petco park any of those places now none of those stadiums need news you know none of those teams need new stadiums but it'd be renovations that those teams would do instead of new stadiums right right and that's where i think that that ballpark renaissance if you will was was so genius and it was so perfectly timed because 
it was at a point where a lot of people were still living away from cities, especially in the East, like the downtown areas of cities were suffering a little bit. And so baseball helped fuel that healing and tie these cities back in together. And it's not because of baseball, because there was already kind of an urban shift, I think that was happening, uh, or at least a a shift back to, to some cities. But in some cities, baseball really did help tie it all together. And I think the Navy Yard is an excellent example because I know you haven't been back to DC in a while, Paul, but next time you go, I would just walk around the Navy Yard neighborhood. I was there back in July and it is unrecognizable because even from, I don't know, like 2014-ish when I I left Virginia to go to Ohio, uh, it was still kind of under construction then, but now it's just absolutely blossomed. And and the Navy Yard, I think I read recently, uh, is just one of the fastest growing slash fastest. Uh, what's what's the term for becoming more expensive? Like <laughs> cost of living. Yeah, cost of living. Yeah, fastest growing cost of living wise. Uh, it it really is amazing what's happened there. Only in the last like five to ten years or so. Last time I was at Nats Park would have been, well, I was there last season. I was there in June or July of last season. Uh, 2019 because i went and that was when i shot it up in the park and yeah but i don't know if the hotels were open yet across the street i think they might have still been putting the finishing maybe they were but uh, either way it's still grown up nicely around there the only really regrettable thing about what's happened down there is that you can no longer see the capitol dome from uh yeah i know that's disappointing you used to have a really great view from like the left field uh mezzanine level looking i guess it's north pretty much straight down south capitol street you can see the Capitol Dome nicely, but yeah, it's too many buildings in the way now. I can't really see it. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I guess like we talked about with the, these last two stadiums, there really isn't another one in the works right now. If Oakland or Tampa does get built, it will be interesting to see if they try to build it into a neighborhood in the city or juxtapose it with, you know, other new developments outside of a city. Um, but I, I think, and again, I highly recommend this book. What Goldberger says is so true about baseball being kind of this all-American sport because we see in these different waves from from industrial urban to suburban to you know this new modern urban, and now like shifting away into um, these weird uh, techno hubs outside cities. Baseball does kind of mimic American history in these unique ways and and the movement of the the locus of of civilization. So. It really is a great reflection. The whole book is a great reflection on American history in respect to baseball. And of course, there's lots of baseball anecdotes throughout. So if you really want to know the the background of any major league ballpark, uh, there's something in here for you. Um, so I definitely recommend it. But I think we can all agree that these great ballparks that we consider, like the the ballpark renaissance ballparks, do that interplay between the rural and the urban really well. And they, no doubt, yeah, yeah, and they lean into the specific features of their city that makes their city great. Think about San Francisco on the water, the mountains, like we said in Denver, the trains in Houston, the you know the warehouse and the harbor in Baltimore. Um, it's it's kind of that that urban identity that really makes the stadium what it is, and I think really makes baseball unique among the American sports. Yeah, good way to wrap it up. I'd say on that one, I, I think that was well said because i there's just 
the flavor, and that goes back to what I was saying before, that each stadium can bring to the atmosphere of the game and the city around it is so important. And it's nice to have seen all those stadiums been able to do that over the last 25 years-ish, uh, especially since 2000 when a lot of these stadiums have been built. Right. Good stuff. Well, thanks for listening, and thanks, Paul, for joining in on the conversation. Uh, I hope to get to some new stadiums soon whenever – hopefully next year we can comes back we can start going to games again next year uh i'm back on the east coast now so i do need to go to philadelphia i need to go to both stadiums in new york uh i need to get back down to atlanta because i I went to turner field but then that closed after 2016 so i haven't been to truist park um so there's a couple within you know within a day trip i can get to and and hopefully we can talk about this some more in the future so thanks for listening check us out on topstucktalk.com and uh until next time That's the top step.